Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 33. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com, Acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody. We are uh, not a weekend, but we're past the first weekend of games in the NHL, and the Leafs have been interesting. But before we talk about the Leafs, Fooliman, how have you been doing for the past week? I have been doing well. Uh, Actually, it feels like the Leafs have now resume their role as taking up a huge portion of my life. Yeah. Just <laughs> been so preoccupied with the first week of games because I'm such a huge hockey nerd. How about you? Pretty much the same. It's it, it's good. I, I no longer have empty pits of doing nothing like I do during the <laughs> offseason. Now it's replaced by thinking about the Leafs, which is, uh, as we know, far more productive and far better for my health. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the Leafs played three games in the, the past almost week, and... Results were mixed. They came away with two wins, both in overtime, and four points. So the first game was against the Montreal Canadiens, who, let's be honest, we thought were going to be kind of butt this year. And the Canadiens, I think it's fair to say, outplayed the Leafs for a long stretch. And the Leafs kind of won by the skin of their teeth, pulling off a 3-2. The next game, the Leafs played better, but it was against the Ottawa Senators, who are, I think, undeniably really bad. Uh, It wasn't the finest night for Freddie Anderson. Uh, Anderson was strong against the Habs and probably got us the win. He was weak against Ottawa and he got us the loss. You know, you win some, you lose some. So we came out with a 5-3 loss to the Sens, which is going to be tarred forever in my memory because the Sens, again, are garbage. And then last night we played the Chicago Blackhawks in a complete gong show of a game that finished 7-6, Uh, in overtime and really just kind of went all over the place. I think there was a lot to feel good about if you were a Leaf fan and also a lot to feel like deeply concerned about it was ever thus. So it's been a mixed bag for a week that we did finish with a winning record, but certainly a lot of ups and downs there. Yeah. So I guess you, you talked a bit about how we played over the first three games and I feel the one word to describe it is leafy. Yeah, it's, you know, we were saying that, like, they really just became the super version of the Leafs. You know, Alan was saying that when we had him guest on the podcast. The Leafs have just leaned in to their identity of maximum offense, defense optional. And that's exactly what they did for three straight games. Yeah, and, and in some games more successful than, than others uh, against Montreal, as you said. You know, I, I don't think it's really an over-exaggeration to say that Montreal just kind of took us to the cleaners in terms of 5-on-5 yeah. five five play. They, they carried the play, right? Um, and Very much so. That was kind of alarming, mm-hmm. right? Uh, especially since we don't consider Montreal to be a very good team. And I guess there's a couple things to note there. Montreal, even last year when everything fell off for them, they were still a good team at driving play at, at shot share, right? Um mm-hmm. I think they actually ranked above the Leafs in that category. And Claude Julien teams are generally like that. The problem Montreal had last year was their goaltending was bad. They didn't really have... They, they shot a very low shooting percentage, and part of that could be variance, and part of that is that they don't really have a ton of high-end finishers who can reliably outshoot uh, their expected shooting percentage. So, mm-hmm. I mean... I think we should give some credit to them. That wasn't just the Leafs playing badly, right? There's this tendency to see your team as a protagonist and everything that happens to them is caused by them. But there's other teams too, and they're also pros. Yeah, 
even in a league where the Leafs are presumably close to the top and some of these other teams are presumably close to the bottom, the reality is they are composed of NHL players in the modern era, which is pretty ridden with parody. Uh, the odds that I saw that were, well, they weren't odds, but the percentage chance that I saw that favored the Leafs most against Ottawa had us at like a 74% favorite, where it's like, you know, that still means that you lose one time out of four. Mm-hmm. And that's about as a lo- as lopsided as it gets. I don't think that we need to worry too much about losing to the Sens as much as, you know, it grates on my soul. Just because we were better than them and it was mostly a matter of goaltending, which can happen. The showing against the Habs, I think, was disconcerting. Yeah. And, um, I mean, in the wake of that, I, I wrote an article that was titled, Is It Too Early to Be Concerned? Mm-hmm. Right? And... The, the premise of it is that a lot of, yes, it's just one game, but the way in which the Leafs struggled against the Habs was just strikingly similar to how they struggled at various different points last year, where in the face of an aggressive forecheck, they resorted to kind of just throwing passes and hoping. It seems like there was very little um, control exhibited in terms of exiting the puck and transitioning the puck, both from our zone to the neutral zone and even bringing it into the Montreal zone, right? So... Mm-hmm. It was a very, very natural concern, I think, to have, given that all of the issues that seemed to be there against Montreal were issues last year, right? And the hope was that, okay, maybe there's some way that they can address this over the course of the offseason. Well, if they have, it certainly wasn't apparent in Game 1. And in Game 2 and Game 3, even though the Leafs played better and carried play and won the expected goals battle relatively handily, actually, in both contests... The same flaws kind of showed up, right? As you said, and as Alan predicted in the offseason, these are the super Leafs. They are Mm -hmm. still awful defensively, but they are still amazing offensively. In fact, even more so with John Tavares' elite talent propelling them even further. Yeah, that's basically the size of it. There's been some discussion about the Leafs system that I think is worth getting into a little bit because... We've complained about the system. We've complained about stretch passes mm-hmm. where the idea seems to be that the Leafs were trying to get through the neutral zone by having their defensemen make long passes to forwards who are waiting or curling near the opposing blue line. The idea is you make one long bomb pass and then your forward gets behind a lot of their team. He can carry it in with possession and then you have a good chance. When this works, it's good. Um like anything else, when it works, it's good. But when it works, you have a good chance of getting into the opposing zone, maybe with numbers, and maybe even on a rush chance that might end in a goal pretty quickly. When it doesn't work, uh, the pass gets stopped, or your guy bobbles it or something, and then the other team just runs right back into your zone with it, and you can get pretty frustrated pretty quickly watching your team just kind of get bottled up and then try to do a long bomb pass that gets cut off, and then get sent back to their own zone and run around. Especially against Montreal, it felt like there were really long stretches where we basically didn't leave our own zone. And when we did, we would uh, get out, get one chance maybe, not sustain much pressure, and then get turned back again. That's what made them so frustrating to watch, and has probably colored a lot of the perceptions since. Yes. So, um... Someone on Twitter actually kind of made a very interesting tweet uh, today. Dan Cavanaugh, at hockey underscore hooligan, 
uh, and he noted that. So he rewatched the three games played so far, and over the three games, he noted 47 stretch pass attempts, 29 of which led to turnovers, and 21 of those 29 turnovers led to sustained pressure in the Leafs zone. In 31 of those, of those 47 attempts, there were no Leafs forwards um, on the Leafs side of center. So essentially, there was no one really providing support to the defenseman. The stretch pass was all they had on 31 of those 47 uh, opportunities. And that seems, that seems like too much. It seems like it's not working. Of course, this is just one small sample. We don't know what the league average for these sorts of breakouts are. Maybe that's something they track in the passing project, but I don't know that off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is one of the major concerns that people have with the Leafs this season and just generally with Babcock systems, right? That it seems incredibly reliant on the stretch pass, which is a kind of a bit of a home run and a bit of a gamble. When it works, it works great. When it doesn't, you get a team that is bad at defending being forced to defend continually. Yeah, and that was basically the result in the Habs game. I won't pretend that I liked how that looked, and I think if those numbers are to be believed, obviously there is some sort of preference for the stretch pass. Um, Morgan Riley has actually talked about in interviews how last year they would look for the weak side winger curling around at the blue line. So that means not only are you doing a stretch pass, but you're going kind of diagonally through the zone. In other words, you're going to the other side of the ice. Making it even longer. Exactly. And so, again, if it works, that's a Hail Mary, um, and that's terrific. Uh, If it doesn't, you know, again, there are a lot of opportunities for that to get turned back around on you. And Riley said, you know, we're looking to do less of that this year. And in game one, especially, it felt like they were doing no less of that. At the same time, uh, I think that there's been a bit of a weird dichotomy that's developed in how people are looking at the um, the Leafs. Like, the idea has been that, okay, the Leafs are being coached to do this. This is Babcock's system. It doesn't work, but he keeps telling them to do it anyway. And it's very frustrating. And there was a tweet... I hate to sound like I'm calling someone out, but there was one specific tweet that I was thinking of here, so I might as well name who did it, uh, from Jeff Vayette on Twitter. And he said, basically, um, that the Leafs system was going to be holding Toronto back, and then the Leafs talent would kind of go rogue and win the game. Which... I have to say, I don't think that that's fair, and I don't think that that's really a constructive way to look at uh, the the team. Right. So and, and definitely. Sorry, yeah, I'm just going to say one thing here, then you can continue. I think both of us agree that there are real flaws to the system, and the over-reliance on the stretch pass is an issue, right? So mm-hmm. we're not saying it's unfair to criticize the system in any way. I, I think I there are very, very legitimate criticisms of the system. But I think what we're getting at here is the way in which you phrase that matters and the way in which you contextualize that and provide kind of precise and specific definitions for things matters in these sorts of discussions. Yeah. Um, so I'll get the exact quote here. So it's clear what I'm responding to. This looks like it's going to be another game where the opponents have an answer for every predictable thing the Leafs are doing systematically with all the real chances coming from the star players going rogue. I think this is really tempting, especially when you have 
talented forwards like we do, players like Matthews and Tavares. And you can draw a clear line between their talent and the goals that they do score. You know, they scored on some great shots, uh, opportunistic scoring where they saw an opportunity and pounced. You Clearly, we have talented guys who are putting the puck in. But every year that the Leafs have been coached by Mike Babcock, they've gotten better in expected goals. On that team that tanked and finished last the year we drafted Matthews, the Leafs were actually a quite good shot share team. And some people have been saying, gee, why were they so good with no talent? And now that we have all this talent, they're not a markedly better shot team. But in expected goals, the, that team was not great. They were taking a lot of low percentage shots. This team is taking more high percentage shots, and that's been a growing trend. That's even above and beyond the fact that the Leafs now have some guys who are better shooters. Um, just the chances that we're getting now are better. If you want to say, okay, the system is flawed, certainly you can look at the system and say that something is happening there. But by the same token, you have to say, okay, the system is generating a lot of chances. And I think it's really too simple to say uh, what Mike Babcock is coaching the team to do is bad and what the players are doing when they choose to break free suddenly and unleash their creativity is good. Obviously, we have talented guys on our team who can do that, who can break free and make quick decisions that end in goals. But they're in a system that has to some extent facilitated that. And at the same time, I doubt Mike Babcock is satisfied with the defense that his team is producing. Like, the answer may just be that these guys are not that great at defense and that the stretch pass is one of the ways that our team is trying to work around not having the greatest transition players in the world in some ways. You know, so it, the biggest thing is I don't think you can separate that out if you want to complain about the system. And I don't think that you can quite say that the system is failing as absolutely as I know it felt like in the, uh, in the game against the Habs. Yeah, so, so that's my little rant. to provide uh, some numbers behind what you said, in 15-16, Babcock's first season, the tank year, the Leafs mm-hmm. were a 49.26% expected goals team. This is all Corsica expected goals. 16-17, uh, Matthews, Marner, and Nylander rookie year, 50.89. Last year, 51.07. This year, in three games, 54.9. Um, so, yeah, I, again, it's very valid to criticize the system, but you also have to acknowledge that using the system, the Leafs have been an above-average team, and in particular their offense has been at or near the top of the league in the last uh, two seasons, and so far this season as well. Now, that doesn't mean yeah. that everything is perfect offensively. Of course, you could, you could argue that the system is actually... Well, the system is still impeding them, and they'd be even better if they employed some other system. But like, I think you have to acknowledge at least that offensively, the Leafs are generating oodles of chances. Yeah, right? um, and I think you need to kind of at least respect that fact, uh, even when you criticize the system. Yeah. Now, which, the you, thing which is, you can and should, and that's fair. It's yes. just, uh, I, I do think we're going down a road where, when the Leafs are disappointing, which they will be sometimes because expectations are so high, and I think it's legit to be disappointed in how they showed up against the Habs. But I think we're going to end up down a road where it's like everything bad is Babcock, everything good is Matthews or Tavares or whoever. And 
I just want to try and like plant a flag now and say like that's gonna be kind of silly. Yeah. Um, I I really don't like uh, the drifter where that's going. Now the Leafs should adjust. Uh, I'd like to see more support for the defense in trying to to get out of their own zone so that they can make a shorter pass. You know that they have at least an option. Of, of someone who can maybe carry the puck a little bit instead of counting on covering the whole zone in one leap. Yeah. It's... The other... The, the tricky thing that exists here is that people generally are not that specific when they decry the system, right? And I, I say that generally. Some people certainly are, and I think those are, again, very valid criticisms to make. But, uh, for example... Jeff in his tweet said that like the goals are going to be caused by people breaking from the system. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to break from mm. the system? What does that look like? You know, s- systems in hockey are not so rigid that there is no fluidity and no chance to improvise at all. It's not like Babcock is going to bench a guy for not making a stretch pass. And then the other thing I don't quite understand is that the goals seem to be very easily tied to definable aspects of the Leafs system. The first goal was Matthews providing low support which I guess some people would say doesn't usually happen, but mm-hmm. it's certainly not irregular for the Leafs to have a center drop low and provide support to his defenseman. But he dropped low, picked up the puck behind his own net, skated out, and before he hit his own dots, floated a stretch pass to, to Kapanen, who had broken away with speed and gets a breakaway and scores. Yeah. Is that not... If that pass ends poorly, do we not immediately say, oh, wow, why, is, why are they always trying the stretch pass? Yeah, that's the thing. Is once it works, suddenly it feels a lot better. Yeah. The, the, I do the think first, that maybe the first Tavares goal started yeah. off uh, a low to high in the offensive zone, a point shot that got blocked and created a scramble in front that where Tavares eventually potted the rebound. Again, that seems like a very defining aspect of the Leafs' offense, where they try and get the puck low, they work it back high to the defenders, the defensemen walk the line and look for a high tip to get it in front of the net without necessarily trying to shoot themselves. The second Matthews goal that made it six uh, five was essentially the same thing. Marlowe got the puck in deep, went low to high. Uh, there was, I believe, a bit of a scramble in front after either a point shot or an attempted tip or just a, a shot to get it closer to the goal mouth. And Matthews capitalized on the scramble situation. Those seem very tied to the Leafs' MO offensively, right? Where they, they love low to high passes. They love high tips. And they love yeah. creating those goal mouth scrambles and, or those slot, high slot scrambles from those situations. So I think that criticism with respect to the Leafs' offense is misguided. Now, here's the thing. As good as the Leafs have been offensively, they are still trash defensively. And I think that's where you can really hammer the tactics that they are trying to employ, right? Because mm-hmm. as, um, as Kavanaugh pointed out in that tweet, oftentimes these stretch passes come back into the Leafs' zone. And essentially, it's a team that is not good in their own zone being forced to stay there for a while. Yeah. And I think that's a far more legitimate criticism than saying all of the Leafs' offense is from people betraying the system and like giving the middle finger to Babcock. I think that is ridiculous and lazy, to be totally honest. Yeah, I, I do think that... Um, and, and this is something, you, you know, I had a weakness for talking like this when I kind of started as an analytics nerd, where it's just sort of like... It feels like there's an obvious answer staring you in the face, and you're just mm-hmm. like, why don't they just fix this? And in my defense, I was watching Randy Carlisle Leafs, and I actually think that in some cases, maybe it was kind of obvious uh, that they should fix some things. But 
a lot of the personnel in the NHL are, for lack of a better description, somewhat knowledgeable about hockey. You know, I don't think that they're blind to events on the ice. I don't think most of them are so totally dogmatic that they ignore all the evidence that's in front of them. I also think that when people complain about the system, they can point to one or two individual elements. But I don't think the system is well-defined in popular understanding. I don't think most fans have maybe a super sophisticated understanding of what the system is. I include myself in that. And I include myself in that as well. Yeah, like I have an amateur's understanding of it. I've like got a copy of Hockey Plays and Strategy on my bookshelf. That is like my understanding. A lot of the coaches who coached me were not good enough to teach you a system beyond first guy goes after the puck carrier, second guy goes to the front of the net. So, you, you know, absolutely there's a learning curve there. And I think maybe it's kind of a larger problem than hockey commentary that there isn't better uh, systems chatter. But as a consequence of that, I think you do end up in situations where the system is an oversimplified thing that's making us sad and the players are a thing that is good. Whereas... I think sometimes that prevents us talking honestly about how certain players were doing. Austin Matthews has had an insanely hot shooting streak, and I don't attribute that to Locke, although he's not going to shoot 43% on the year. But he has shown unbelievable offensive ability uh, in the Ozone. Like, in the Ozone, I think it's clear he's a top-five player in the world now, as of this instant. That said, uh, he had one shift to start off uh, last night against the Blackhawks when the Leafs were scrambling, where he made two really piss-poor giveaways in his own zone that led to the Leafs being hemmed in for an extended period because he just bobbled the passes. That's not me saying that, like, Austin Matthews as a player is anything less than brilliant. It's just saying that he's not flawless. And I think there's almost a reluctance to talk about the flaws on our star players at times. And then you get more chatter about the system when it's like, look, Morgan Riley and Jake Gardner and Nikita Zaitsev, for example, are in some ways good at stretch passes, in some ways they're bad. Uh, Austin Matthews is probably not the best player in his own zone yet. I don't know how to honestly evaluate John Tavares' defensive work. Uh, sometimes I thought it was good, sometimes I thought it was bad. But it's not impeccable. And, and so I think that you know, as this goes forward and the Leafs hopefully start getting a little better at defense from uh, different things, but maybe they won't. Uh, Maybe it's just going to be run and gun the whole way. And blaming that, the flaws of that wholly on the system and the benefits wholly attributed to the players is going to be a mistake. Yeah. And, I mean, one thing I should say, sometimes the solution is that obvious, right? Like, everyone was Mm. clamoring for Leo Komarov to get off the Kadri line last year because he was clearly not really adding much. He right. did, eventually, and it worked, right? And I think th- that is certainly the case sometimes, where there's an obvious solution staring you in the face, and that solution ends up being correct. That's not true mm-hmm. 100% of the time. And no. it would not surprise me if, hey, if Babcock made a couple tweaks to the system that people on hockey Twitter would love, right? Like bringing more yeah. support load, trying to emphasize more quick short, stre- um, pa- sorry, quick short passes in the defensive zone as opposed to someone, as, as opposed to three players trying to take the top off their defense. Um, mm. but I don't think even making those changes would magically turn the Leafs into the 2007 Red Wings. Yeah, I, I hate to say it, but it's like, 
sometimes the obvious answer staring you in the face is just this team isn't that good defensively. Yeah, there there are a lot of, of players on this team who do not really excel there, right? And no. Ultimately, it, I think it does fall on the coach to create a better system. And uh, again, mm-hmm. neither Fulman nor I are, are happy with the Leafs' defensive system, right? Yeah. We look awful in our own zone. And the breakouts, 100%, are a huge part of that. Even in spite of the Leafs being strong offensively in terms of the results, there, there is clear room for optimization there. Yeah. And, and they're, they're clearly really awful at some pretty key aspects of it. It's like once, once they get into the offensive zone, they're fine. They're, they're brilliant. They might be the best team in the world at creating chances once they're in the offensive zone, right? Yeah. They're legitimately really good at things like dump and chase, right? They, they dump the puck in, but they actually have good forecheckers. They, mm-hmm. they actually have people who are incredible puck thieves and can create offense and defensemen who are really, really adept at getting shots through and all that sort of thing. And those are all good. But yeah, there, there are absolutely... 100% huge problems with the way this team is set up. However, it's intellectually dishonest to point to a couple aspects of a poorly defined system and say that these are responsible for everything and that it's all on the coaches and that the players hold no culpability and that their their potential is right there and it could be perfectly unlocked and become an amazing team if only the coach would do these three easy steps. Yeah. Hockey's not I, I that mean, simple. I think it. I think that really understates the complexity that they're dealing with, and the fact that it takes some time to for players to learn how to execute things. Right? This isn't a video game where you can say, "Okay, now we're no, now we're doing an overload, or now we're doing whatever, a swarm," and the players will immediately execute that perfectly. There's a learning curve with this sort of thing, and it's not always that straightforward. And I think a lot of this comes down to when you discuss things regarding hockey. I feel like. And this is something you've mentioned a lot, Fulman. Your default assumption about why someone isn't doing something should not be because they are dumb. Mm-hmm. Right? You have to respect the complexity of the decisions that they're making. And yeah, I think I- I'm hammering this point home. Yes, there are real problems, but the problems are not 100% on the systems. Yeah. Right? It's always going to be a combined thing. Yeah. And to be clear, I don't mean to. I feel like we had to make this point directly, and it was one tweet in particular from Jeff. Nothing against Jeff. Smart guy. Good hockey watcher. I've agreed with him on a lot of things, but it's just I do think that this is going to be kind of a trend in the chatter around the team, and I, I think it's oversimplified. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I yeah. mean, we're kind of sitting on the fence here, right? Yeah. But, but <laughs> the, the reality is, like, we agree with it sort of, but not all the way. Yeah, but the reality is, like, that's what complex systems are, right? Most complex systems do not have one point of failure where you can address that and everything works out brilliantly, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's life, right? Um, yeah. Things are hard. So... You know, if it were this easy, everyone would do it. But then yeah. it's like, you know, you have opposition that is at the same time working. And I mean, I get it. The thing is, is that and we mentioned this last week, the Leafs can look so good when they look good. They look like the best team you've ever seen. And the talent has definitely been on display for stretches, and you're thinking, surely we can leverage that talent more than we have, and we can just be as dominant as it seems like we should be. And you know what? I tweeted about this in the beginnings of the Ottawa game. I 
I really think this team misses William Nylander more than is obvious. And a lot of people were like, uh, William Nylander doesn't play goal. And I'm like, I know. But William Nylander is a good transition player. Uh, he's I think an elite Nylander, transition player. More than, more than good. He is like, one of the best in the league. And I, I say that with no exaggeration. Seriously. And so in terms of if you're thinking, gee, I wish we had more options for getting through the zone that weren't the long bomb pass all the time. William Nylander is one such option, you know, almost by himself. For a while, our power play entries uh, a year or two back were just give the puck to William Nylander. And it kind of worked, like, a lot of the time. Uh, so he, I think when we do get him back, uh, that will help a little bit. But, yeah, I mean, it comes back around to what we said at the beginning. These are the Leafs, and they are leafing very aggressively. Yes. Right so, so, like, to sum up this first 30 minutes, the Leafs... Are, they are who we thought they were. They're incredible offensively. They are really bad defensively. That, the responsibility for that is in large parts on the coaching staff, but it also mm-hmm. falls on the players, and I don't think there's a quick, easy, magic bullet fix that will suddenly turn the Leafs into a great defensive team or maybe even an average defensive team. Maybe, maybe there's a quick, easy fix that takes them from being the 28th-ranked defensive team to the 22nd, and that is meaningful. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's as simple as people say, and I don't think the system is wholly culpable for the poor defensive results that we've seen. Yeah, that's about the size of it. The reality is also the system is easier to blame than, oh, our personnel just aren't there, because our personnel we're kind of stuck with at this point. And and again, the coach staff absolutely bears some blame. It's just Mm -hmm. I'm uncomfortable with, the idea of them bearing all of it. Yeah, that's uh, about where I get to. So let's um, maybe let's focus in on some individual players. Yeah, that we've uh, we've seen. Uh, Mike Babcock, God bless him, <laughs> had one of his quotes about Zach Hyman, uh, and just talked about you know like no one talks about him, but he's doing a lot. We're always playing in the offensive zone when he's there, and he just you know he kind of rhapsodized about him. And you know what? I think Mike Babcock is correct to do so, up to a point. So Zach Hyman has obviously been blessed in the line mates that he's gotten throughout his career. There's no question about that. He's always played with unusually good centers for a player of his style. But I really do think that uh, he's impressed me at times with what he brings with his grind game, with his ability to kind of go to the dirty areas and free up guys who are obviously very talented, like uh, Tavares and... Mitch Marner, uh, to do what they do best. And even though, you know, Hyman has a couple of assists, which it is what it is, I think you can note that he was involved in some of those goals uh, in a way that maybe wasn't as obvious or direct as some people might like, but that clearly contributed. So I just want to plant my flag again and say Zach Hyman is doing a good job, in my opinion. Yeah, and I mean... I don't think it's an accident that pretty much every context-adjusted uh, statistic for like driving play, like evolving hockey's RAPM and Micah McCurdy's isolated threat, pretty much all of them paint Zach Hyman as a very good driver of, of play, right? And I think that's mm-hmm. what Babcock loves about him. And it's, it's because he wins all those battles and because he kind of knows his role. He's a very smart player. Hyman's an excellent player. I think he has more to do with that line's success than people give him credit for. That said, he still is the third most important part of that line, right? We're not going to get crazy here. 
Um, and Mitch Marner and John Tavares have been really, really excellent, right? Um, and e even aside from the hot shooting that has provided them with plenty of points thus far, both are above point per game. I think they both have four points in three games. Mm. Um, they are dominating teams, right? Their, their oh, yeah. Corsi 4 percentage is phenomenal. Their expected goals percentage is, is quite good. It's doing, that line is doing exactly what we all hoped they would do. It's clearly the Leafs' best line right now without Nylander back. It might be the Leafs' best line even when Nylander does come back. Yeah, there's, there's like a real chance of that. Um, and, and, you know, I, again, I think that is a testament to sometimes the coach does get some things right because I think he saw the pieces there and he put them together. And while you can say there was no wrong answer, and that's what we said, it's been effective. And there, were a lot, there are a lot of people who always want to replace Zach Hyman with different players. Um, some of them I understand. If it, like I could see a case, for example, for putting Kasperi Kapanen in Zach Hyman's job. That'd be a trade-off there. Sometimes they want to do things like put Josh Levo there, which I think is nuts. Uh, but either way, that's been effective, and it's been gratifying to see. The Matthews line, it's weird to say this, and I want to be clear because this is going to sound insane. Austin Matthews is leading the league in points after three games. He has eight. <laughs> so, you know, when you're on pace to clear 200 points, it feels silly to complain about anything. Yeah, like, obviously he's not going to sustain this, but it's like, I picked Matthews to win the Rocket Richard, and he's got a really excellent chance of it. As a whole, that line has felt like it's mostly... It really is the Austin Matthews show. He had, he bears such a ridiculous offensive burden on that line. Yeah. I, I, Tyler Ennis, you know, we were all impressed in preseason. I like him. Did not bring a lot to the table in the first couple games that I was seeing. And last night against Chicago, he was replaced with Kasperi Kapanen. And, like, almost immediately the game turned. It's a bit harsh on Ennis, just how that worked out, because it made it really look like he was kind of part of the problem, because Kapanen immediately went off for a couple points and the game was tied again. But I wouldn't be surprised if Kapanen just took Ennis's job, and I think that that's going to be to the benefit of that line. Thus far, it's been Austin Matthews is a solo offensive genius, and we all know that, and that's great to have. But we really do want William Nylander back because there's so much more that can be unlocked if you give him people to play with. And right now he hasn't had that to the extent that I would like. Like, we're still a really good forward group minus William Nylander. But I think the drop-off from with him to without him is really, really... Like, I've been feeling it these first few games. Yeah. Even aside from how great Matthews has still been. Yeah, I mean, the Matthews line with... As a whole, over the first three games, um, has been well below fifty percent in, in shot share, and actually below fifty percent in expected goals, which is impressive because even when that line struggles, the one thing that Matthews lines always do is that the right people shoot. Like Ma Matthew shoots mm -hmm. a lot, and his forward line mates shoot a lot, almost always. They they very rarely take defenseman shots. But yeah. in spite of that, their expected goals uh, ratio is, is is poor, and that's part of that is because they're spending too much time in their own defensive zone. Uh, and I should note that this is despite Matthews getting some pretty cushy zone start usage. So, like, yeah. if you're going to adjust his stats for context in terms of driving play, they would be the 
adjusted downwards, if anything. Um, so part of that has to do with, as you said, not having Nylander. I, it, I don't know. It, it, it's interesting. As you said, it, when you have a guy with eight points in three games, it's hard. It feels a little ridiculous to criticize him. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that line really hasn't worked phenomenally at even strength with Ennis on it. With Kapitan on it and the, you know, 80% of the game that they played, they were, they were quite good. Yeah. I, I, again, like, I, I feel like I'm really looking a gift horse in the mouth here. But from the time Matthews came into the league with his size, with his proficiency with takeaways and stuff like that, the idea was that he was going to be a two-way force in addition to being offensively dynamite. And we're now at the start of his third season. And what seems to have happened to me now is that you can make a tenable case. He's the most offensively dangerous player in the world not named Connor McDavid right now. At least on his own pure account with his, shoot, his status as a shooting threat. He's not good in his own zone yet. Like, it just hasn't been there, in my opinion. It, to be clear, that pales in comparison to his enormous offensive benefits. Like, he can be a Hart Trophy candidate mm-hmm. playing exactly like this. No question. It's just... I, I would like to see maybe more in his own zone just to stop those endless cycles against where we don't get the puck back. And some of that is... Definitely not on him. It's a team-wide problem. And I'm hoping we can get more options there. But I have just noticed it um, to a greater degree. I can't believe that I even allowed myself to complain at all about a player as good as Austin Matthews playing for the Leafs. So I apologize for how silly that probably sounded. But, but no, I, I felt I, obliged to point it out. I think, I think it's <laughs> a fair criticism to make. Or not even really a criticism. It's just a note. I mean, look, right yeah. now... Even with Kapanen, his line mates aren't great, right? Patrick Marlowe is no. a good player, but he's not like a top 90 forward in the league anymore. He, he's probably like a solid second liner, right? Kasperi Kapanen, yeah. even if we're counting his upside here, tops out at probably a decent, decent second line guy, right? And that's mm-hmm. optimistic. His line mates are not amazing. So it's not surprising that so far his line has struggled to carry play and that so far in his career his line has struggled to carry play when he's not played with star players and it's worth noting that despite this again the the context adjusted stats like RAPM and isolated threat they all rate Matthews as incredibly strong offensively despite this right like so even when you adjust for the fact that um he's so much better when he has a puck dominating line mate. He, he's still incredibly strong offensively. It's not, that's not a concern really. But like it, it's clear that Nylander has a very positive effect on Matthews. It's a two way street. Mm-hmm. It's very much a two way street. And I, yeah, I think, like, I, I guess people probably get annoyed at us talking about this because a lot of people understand that Nylander is incredibly good, right? And he is. He, yeah. He's very good. They don't need to be reminded of it. But people, a lot of other people are like, oh, no, Nylander is, he, he, gets, he gets carried by Matthews. He's, he's good, but not great. Like, no, Nylander is an amazing player. He is so good. Yeah. He is, as of right now, or as of last season, an average first-line player at worst. Yeah. And he, he was yeah. 21, right? Like, he's going to be a phenomenal player. 
Yeah. And, you, you know, right now, no one is happy with Nylander and Leafland because yeah. he won't sign a damn contract. And look, you know, I've been saying I'm not worried about this. It is. It's dragging on now. I, I think it's going to get resolved eventually, but I am definitely impatient for it to get resolved. Uh, it sucks. I, I want my team to be all together. But there's been almost like some wishful thinking being like, see, look how good Matthews is with Cap, and we don't even need William Nylander. Trade him for whoever. And that's a natural outlet of frustration. So I try not to take it too seriously, but it is like silly. Yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> it's really, really dumb. We are much better with Nylander. Matthews is much better with Nylander. He's incredible on his own, right? And mm-hmm. again, he has been incredibly proficient offensively to start the year, even if the play driving hasn't told, hasn't really reflected that. Mm-hmm. Um, but his larger body of work says even without Nylander, he, yes, he's still going to be great offensively. It's just he can he he's even better with him, right? That that's the point. Like, yeah, it's a symbiotic relationship between the two. Exactly. With Nylander, I think this is the best forward group in the NHL. And with Nylander, I think Matthews is like a strong threat to win a scoring trophy. Yeah, um, absolutely. So I, I want that back. So yeah, like that's that's the one criticism I have of Matthews now. Like I want him to elevate his line more than he has, but he's he's it's not an easy position. And he no. doesn't really have the help with him, especially in terms of people transitioning the puck. And that is one place where getting Nylander is going to help very tangibly. Uh, there's a lot of Leafs issues that Nylander won't help with, like the defensive zone execution or the breakouts, uh, at least the, de- the, the defenseman aspect of the breakouts and mm. the tactics there. But he will definitely help with that. Um, Marlowe, I think, has been okay. I, I don't really notice him much in the defensive and neutral zones, but he's incredibly poised and skilled with the puck in the offensive zone. He can finish, he can pass uh, pretty well. I've been thinking a lot about this. Uh, I was at my parents for Thanksgiving and so I was talking to my dad who's uh, a veteran hockey watcher and he was saying like the thing about Marlowe is he's 39 and he's like not really lost a step at all mm-hmm. he doesn't miss a game all that sort of stuff but at the risk of sounding a little Don Cherry-ish on this sometimes I can see why because he's not always involved Mm-hmm. in the play in an obvious way you know like there'll be long stretches where it's just like you kind of forget he's there and then you see him zooming up the wing that's okay that's a way of playing that has worked for him really well it's enabled him to have incredible longevity and he is still a useful player but and this is just me like going bananas now in terms of my Zach Hyman love but like <laughs> I noticed his level of engagement Less than I did with Zach Hyman on that line. Um, just the engagement from the left wing there. There are stretches where Marlowe just appears in the offensive zone zooming in, and suddenly you're like, oh, right, he's still a very good player. And then there are stretches where he disappears. And I don't even mean that so much in, I don't mean that in some moral way, where it's mm-hmm. like, oh, he's, he thought it's just he is what he is. And so, so I think that that's a limitation that, you know, you just kind of have to accept. Again, once Nylander comes back and Marlowe is allowed to be kind of more of a passenger at times and then to sort of show up and strike, I think that'll that'll work fine. It's just, I don't think Marlowe is moving the needle to a huge extent right now. Do you think that line would work better, the Matthews line, with Hyman on it as opposed to Marlowe, like right now, as presently constructed without Nylander? Yes, 
I think Hyman Matthews Kapanen would be a little better in some ways. I, I like Ka- what Kapanen brings in terms of speed. That said, Marlowe is fine where he is. He's still good. And I'd rather have Hyman with Tavares and uh, Marner right now just because I think that's been working really well. But I think that just there are certain things that Marlowe doesn't quite bring for you. And that's, again, totally fine because he's good with what he does bring. It's just he has, like every Leafs player, certain limitations. I'm trying to be, like, balanced about this because I'm worried it comes across as more critical of him than I mean to be because he's a good player. It's just, yeah, I, I can see maybe why Mike Babcock rhapsodizes about the guys who are kind of gritty and go in the corners and stuff because sometimes you notice that a lot of the rest of our team doesn't always have those attributes. Mm. So, I I disagree with you on that. I think I mean, I think Marlowe's play driving it, it's not always noticeable, but mm. I think it, it shows up in the stats. Again, the context and teammate adjusted metrics have him as mm-hmm. very strong by this measure over the past couple seasons. So I, I think I think right now it might just be he might have just had a poor set of games. He is thirty nine. You can ex- probably expect some decline. I know he's an ageist wonder, but Time is yeah. undefeated. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that line hasn't worked out particularly well. Uh, I think that might just be the fit. I think the things that Marlowe does that lead to his play driving ability being strong are things that he does kind of more in the offensive zones and with the puck mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to through the neutral zone. And I think that's really where that line has struggled. Um, Marlo is, is he, he really is brilliant in the offensive zone though like still even at oh, his yeah. age he he, he finds still has space the instincts, he still has the speed yeah. he's still uh, veteran savvy to some extent like he absolutely knows where to go yeah he, he's um, incredible and that, that's why that line has still looked really good with when they get offensive zone faceoffs right like they've been dominating yeah. off those because and even they were that, like that even with, with Ennis at, at points but Matthews and Marler Mar- Marler Matthews and Marlo are so strong offensively and so poised with the puck. They, they know exactly where to be. They, they're going to combine well when they get the puck in the offensive zone. It's just getting there enough. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, I, th- I, I think that'll get resolved when Nylander comes back. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might even be resolved with Kapanen, who's certainly way more of a zone entry threat than Ennis is at this point in his career. Um, I want to talk about Kadri's wingers as well. Yeah. They've sucked. Uh- yeah, I I honestly start like every time I think, are we going to be critical of Connor Brown again? And I don't want to be, but it's like Connor Brown looks to me like a perfectly cromulent third line winger and all that, but he hasn't done a lot in some admittedly not the easiest usage. Uh, Josh Levo has been like aggressively unmemorable to me. Mm-hmm. Like it, it it's almost like, and I, I've watched all of these games, and yet I can remember one pass that Levo made, and I'm still kind of dazzled that, like, so little has imprinted me on my mind from him. Yeah. I, well, regarding Brown, you mentioned the usage. Isn't that just kind of mm. standard third-line usage, right? Like, at, at this point in, in this season, I don't think Babcock mm-hmm. has really used Kadri as, like, a super hard-match shutdown group. But, like, yeah. if you're a third-liner, you're not going to get offensive zone starts unless, you know, you have a really odd, sheltered third-line the way the Leafs did last year, which is kind of an anomaly because they had so many talented players on rookie deals that they could afford to have James Van Riemsdyk and Tyler Bozak on their third-line. Um, mm-hmm. 
But like for most third liners, I feel like Brown has like pretty average usage. I, I just think he's yeah he's he's an average-ish NHL forward, maybe a bit above, maybe a bit below, and it's kind of disheartening to see that with Kadri in particular because Kadri is such a brilliant player, but he's not so brilliant that he can lift Brown and Levo to competence, right? Yeah, like like I- Kadri should should bear some blame here, but I put a lot less blame on the consistently excellent two-time 30-goal scorer who has been a play driver throughout his career as opposed to the two wingers who visibly are doing nothing. Yeah. To be fair, I would say Brown made a couple plays last night that I thought were, you know, just nice little defensive plays. Yeah, like, yeah. No, I, stuff. he made a couple really um, nice back checks, but like... But yeah, I mean, he, he hasn't dazzled anybody. I, I think the bigger thing is Josh Levo, where it's like... He's finally getting a chance yeah. for now, and he hasn't been able to do a lot with it. And I really get the feeling, you know, he had some great point-per-game stats once upon a time. But if he's not putting up points, I start to feel like Josh Levo doesn't do anything. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I think that when Lelander comes back, Josh Levo is, like, a pretty solid threat to be press-boxed again. And I have a tough time arguing with that. Now, that said, our fourth-line left-wing has been Andreas Janssen. And it's hard to shine much in a fourth-line role. Like, it's easy to play well-ish and not really get an opportunity to shine. Has he done anything that looks to you in the early going like this is a guy who needs to be promoted? Because Kapanen has, mm-hmm. and Janssen hasn't, and it's been a little disappointing. Yeah, I mean, Janssen's been, I think, a good fourth-liner thus far, right? His mm-hmm. shot suppression numbers actually themselves look, look quite good. I've liked him on the power play a little bit. He looks competent there. It's a really, there's a huge drop-off from the first unit to the second unit, so my expectations aren't high. Yeah. But he, he's not effing things up the way Brown did. <laughs> that, that's like my low <laughs> watermark. <laughs> are you better than Connor Brown in the power play? Yeah. Congratulations. Um, but yeah, he hasn't. I think the hope was that he would do more than mm-hmm. like he th- that he would do more with the puck and do more things where he is actively bringing positive attributes to the table as opposed to just providing good results, slowing slowing down the game a lot when he's on the ice. Kind of typical solid fourth liner things. And to be fair to Janssen, he has not been given a huge opportunity. He hasn't played much, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think when you're in that situation, as Babcock always says, you have to take the job of someone ahead of you. Uh, I wouldn't mind him taking the job of Levo because I think Levo really hasn't done enough to keep it. But like, you have to provide an impetus for the coach to put you up, to promote you, right? You can't really just do it for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, not just from like a not just from the perspective of the coach, but like also uh, in terms of the man management aspect of it, I think, you know, Ennis probably would agree that, okay, yeah, Kapanen has done more than me so far. I can understand that. If the guy who who gets promoted has done like literally nothing positive or nothing visible, I think that might mm-hmm. be a little harder to swallow. Um, maybe I overthink that, but yeah, it's just, yeah. I think we'd like him to do a little more. Right, and it's not that he's been bad. It's that I want him to be better because a huge part of the Leafs not retaining James Van Riemsdyk and and going to get John Tavares 
which is 100% still the right decision, but a lot of it was mm-hmm. based on it is not impossible for our wingers to replace a notable portion of JVR's production, right? And thus far, the depth wingers have unequivocally not done that. So, yeah, it, it, it hasn't been there. And, you know, maybe expectations were too high because mm-hmm. uh, he was so good, but I, I think he has more to give, and I'm hoping to see it. Uh, the good news is, I think it's fair to say that for the first time in their history, the Toronto Maple Leafs are going to have a player win the Norris Trophy for the NHL's best defense. <laughs> and that's because, in their infinite wisdom, they have once again played Martin Marincin. And <laughs> he is... And, okay. So, as a bit of backstory, if you've been listening to the podcast, Arvin and I have, like, an ongoing semi-ironic, but, like... Also semi-sincere love for some of what Martin Marincin brings. Because he's such a weird player in so many respects. He consistently puts up bizarrely good results. Sometimes in pretty difficult usage. And then if you ever watch this guy play the puck, you're like, I'm not sure he should be allowed outside. And yet, it keeps happening in this way. And so I kind of thought that his struggles with the puck were such that he was kind of done uh i you know he spent most of the last year in the ahl and i thought that that was kind of the sign that okay things are winding down he's gonna play in the ahl and then eventually maybe go home to europe but uh igor Ozaganov, who came over from russia had an okay ish game against the habs had a rougher game against the sens and marinchen drew in last night and the leafs while marinchen was on the ice somehow had 74 percent of the expected goals which is ludicrous, mm-hmm. and, like, I don't attribute it to Marincin, really, but I don't know. It just, like, this sort of stuff seems to happen to him. From the eye test, I thought he played pretty decently. Uh, he's always been rangy, and he can kind of do stuff in the neutral zone. He played with Travis Dermott, and while Dermott made some mistakes last night, I think that, by and large, he's been encouraging, and he, he's shown a lot of the potential that leads people to hope he can be a top-four player before too long. But yeah, uh, so I won't be surprised if Marincin draws in again next game. And here we go again. <laughs> yeah, no, Marincin was, I think, pretty good last night. He, he was the same old Marincin, mm-hmm. but like, with Marincin, you just hope that, you know, as a fan of his, I'm just hoping that he doesn't like throw up a grenade at any point. <laughs> yeah, like, if he avoids, like just don't totally implode. Yeah, yeah, like it, even when he like fans on the puck, it's like, okay, well, you know what, he fanned on the puck, but it wasn't in the slot. He's learning. <laughs> Um, he didn't actually shoot the puck into his own net backwards while laughing at our own goaltending. So yeah, it's a good chef. Exactly. Um, but yeah, no, he. I think he is fine as a third pairing defenseman. I hope he mm-hmm. continues to stabilize. I think if Babcock can stomach the eventual grenade that he's going to launch. Oh yeah. Um, he's probably the least best option there right now, on on the third pair right side. I like that he can play on the PK because it means we no longer have to grind Ron Hainsey and Nikita Zaitsev into dust. Yeah, which has been like, that's a concern. Mm-hmm. Ron Hainsey, as we all know, last year played more shorthanded minutes than anyone in the NHL. Yeah. And the dude is like a billion. Yeah. And he looked really, really rough in the Montreal game. Interestingly, um, um, Hainsey has very mm-hmm. good shot numbers thus far. I, I question how much of it is 
what he's responsible for. Uh, mm-hmm. He and Riley have played a lot behind the Tavares line, which has been the Leafs' best. So I think that yeah. influences results. And uh, similarly, Gard- or kind of on the other hand, Gardner and Zaitsev have played a lot with uh, the Matthews line, which has struggled a fair bit more. So Gardner's eyes have gotten probably a little harder usage. Mm-hmm. But it's it's difficult in three games to tease out, is the Riley-Hainsey pairing doing well because of the Tavares line, or are they impacting things? And similarly, is, is Gardner's eyes have making the Matthews line appear worse than they are, or is it the other way around? Like, it's hard to tease that out. I don't read too much into the results thus far. And, and that goes for the forwards as well. I, I, but I guess it's a bit more tangible with the fours because you can evaluate more like where where they're shooting from, and offense is more individualistic than defense, which is more systemic. Yeah. So actually, we we just validated Jeffrey last stream, but uh, well, um, I mean, sorry to digress here. Like, yeah, Jeff might be correct about like goals breaking from structure, but I, it's still unclear to me what that means because I feel like that applies for most teams. Like, what does a goal that occurs within the structure of a team look like? Yeah. Right. It, the answer is it's probably not binary, where it's like so the structure did some of the things to get the puck where it ended up, yeah. and the player did some other things. Exactly. Like it's not so easily delineated, and I think that applies to the Leafs' goals, as we detailed, you know, with our discussion on how some of their goals came about and how that fits very well into the Leafs' system. Anyways, digression aside, um, yeah, like I find it a bit hard to evaluate them so far. I think Hainsey has not been great from what I've seen, but if the results are there then they're there i suppose i'm not sure um yeah how much he's doing to influence them but i guess i guess you can't complain too hard at some point with the least defenseman it's like if we have somebody who's playing on the right side and the results are okay it's almost like well we have to take that mm-hmm. because that's the best case scenario interestingly uh, Angie's results are like notably better than than riley's yeah that's fascinating isn't it I, i'm guessing that might with three games that honestly might be like three shifts where Riley got played with Dermot and like yeah. something happened. Um, mm-hmm. I don't really know, but yeah, that's yeah. something to keep an eye out for. With Hainsey, it's like uh, it, I'd be surprised if he does better than last year just because of the type of player he is. So mm-hmm. and like where he is on the age curve, I, I just don't really see it. Um, Riley's had a really hot start offensively, but he's. He, he is perhaps the biggest microcosm of what the Leafs are as a team because he is so brilliant oh, yeah. offensively, but he is awful in his own zone. He cannot defend to save his life. Yeah. The Leafs are Morgan Riley, Pretty basically. much. Yeah, and it, um, it goes even for... I mean, Morgan Riley is a very good player, but probably not in the top tier of defensemen. I think the Leafs right now are a very good team, but not in the top tier of teams. It's a decent metaphor, actually. Yeah, and, and you know, our hope is that they can be in the top tier of teams. But I, I think it's fair to say that they haven't quite looked it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've said in the past that as Gardner goes, so go the Leafs. And I think Gardner has gone, eh, is how I would put it. I mean, you mentioned his stats earlier, which are not... Not good at all, really. ...inspiring. Uh, he's looked okay. He's had a couple of the, the usual mistakes where you kind of clap your hand to your forehead. Mm-hmm. And he's had other stretches where he's looked okay. Really getting... I've said this before, getting a good second pairing out of Gardner and Zaitsev is huge for this team, if it should happen. Hainsey, you know, I'm hoping the results will continue to be there. He, to my eye test, he looks bad. Yeah. But uh, that is what it is. And 
then Travis Dermott is sort of the great hope because I don't think that we have any realist, realistic expectation of more defensive help coming this year other than Travis Dermott getting better. Yeah, and so he, like last year, he looks too good for the role he's been given. Mm-hmm. Right, he, he, he made some errors in the Chicago game, but that was the first time I remember seeing him kind of visibly screw up in an obvious way. Um, yeah. His usage is, this year is similar to what it was last year. Right, he destroyed that usage last year. He will probably do the same this year. I wonder if, as the season progresses, his usage will ramp up a little bit. Yeah, and, and you know, he and uh, Marincin did some penalty killing together, mm-hmm. and so certainly anything that eases the burden on Hansi and Zaitsev a little bit, I think, is to the good purely for fatigue reasons. And so, I'd certainly prefer that to when we were kind of relying on Roman Polak to kill penalties and then otherwise just exist yeah so yeah so we, we've hit on basically every leafs skater at this point except so wait have we hit on everyone <laughs> yeah well we didn't really talk about parlindholm but he's been fine um i think us not talking about parlindholm for either good or bad is actually the most eloquent statement of how he has played yeah uh, so he's been exactly that he's been fine yeah um the goalies <laughs> yeah so frederick anderson was really really good against Montreal, and he also appeared in a game against the Ottawa Senators, and that was less fun. There was a lot of talk about October Freddy coming back out again, uh, whereas, you know, each of the last couple years in Toronto, Freddy has looked really rough in October, and then he's kind of gotten it together and become a top-tier starter again. I hope he figures it out quicker this time. All you can say is that he played two games, and, you know, he, he won us one, that we didn't deserve to win, and he lost us one that we probably did deserve to win, so on balance, it's kind of a wash. Garrett Sparks. Um, so I said, with a little bit of reluctance, but my answer in the end was, you gotta hold on to Garrett Sparks. You should waive Curtis McElhinney and Calvin Pickard. And we did. And we lost them both on waivers, which kind of sucks. And so Sparks last night, I think, was bad. Is how I would put it. He had uh, an early start. He had no chance on the first two goals whatsoever. And I think that the defense kind of hung him out to dry early. I think there's a real tendency with goalies, especially when people like them, to kind of go goal by goal and say like, okay, but that was a really tough one to stop. Okay, well, that one wasn't, you know, wholly his fault. The defense could have done better on that one. And after a while, it starts being like, okay, at some point, you just got to make a fucking save, though, man. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not a good game where you get scored on six times. Now, that said, it's one game. It's unfair to judge anyone on one game. And if you thought Garrett Sparks was the right guy to hang on to for the backup job, and I did, you should not really be much altered than that opinion from one game last night. Right. It's unfortunate because that's kind of the nature of the backup job. And Jonas Enroth, who we had a couple years ago, had, I think, four starts before he basically got completely turfed. So there's not a lot of leash there. But the sum total of it would be give him more time. At the same time, I think it's weird not to acknowledge that he was bad yes. last night. Yeah, I don't no, think that he played well. He, he was bad last night, right? Like, I, I think mm-hmm. Sparks himself would admit that. Yeah. And Mike Babcock had a 
pretty thinly veiled comment where he said, I thought we started playing better, but the puck kept going in our net. It's really tempting to read in some subtext there about who Mike Babcock wanted to keep between him and McElhinney. Mm -hmm. Um, That's speculative, but I don't think it's baseless speculation. But at any rate, what more can you say other than you hope he gets his feet under him a little bit? I don't know when his next game is going to be because the Leafs don't play another back-to-back for a few weeks. I think it's like so not until I, November. Exactly. So I hope he's not going to be left to stew over it, but it may just end up being this is another year where Freddie Anderson starts a lot. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see. <laughs> yeah, and to Sparks' credit, he, I think he had a strong start to that game. Uh, the Leafs got run over in the first 10 minutes or so of that game. And yeah. after that, they recovered. Um, and, and started generating more. I mean, they were still awful defensively, but their offense kind of made up for it. Um, mm-hmm. And Sparks did a really good job in the first 10 minutes, even though he let in two goals. He could have let yeah. in more, right? Um, yeah, uh, it, like honestly, and I do, I just kind of complained about this. When you say a goalie had no chance, mm-hmm. I th- I'm hesitant to say that a lot. He had no chance on the first two. Yeah. One of them was a high tip that I think was a high stick, yeah, to be honest I, with you. I, I do too. I was kind of surprised they didn't that should have been called back, pull that man. back. Yeah. Like, and the, the commentators were going like, oh, you know, this seems really iffy. I'm like, does it? Like, are my eyes that bad? But I don't know. I thought that was really clear. Was like, they showed obvious. one level angle and I was like, that's definitely above the bar, but whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind mm-hmm. of... I. It was one of those things where like, the commentators and the ref both saw it the same way, so I'm like, okay, I'm guessing I just like had Homer glasses on or something. Um, yeah. But but yeah, I I thought that was clear. Like a lot of the times when it goes against us, mm-hmm. I'm like, well, I guess that was ambiguous. Yeah. And I try to be good about acknowledging that, but I anyway. But either way, I don't think you can fault Sparks for it. And then the the next one was a bang bang passing play where it's like, there's really not a lot he can do except kind of throw himself laterally and pray, because. No one was doing their job on defense. After that, though, not the greatest showing. Yeah. Um, and getting scored on a couple times uh, short side in the last minute, mm, that hurts. <laughs> yeah, that was so. not a banner moment for him. Man, that game was just absolutely wild. That was a strange game. You know, zooming out from all the like the kind of nerdy over analysis that we've done, Wow, that was weird. Yeah, like, what a bonkers game. It would, like... The Leafs seem like they could, like, just easily end up in a game this year that ends, like, 12-9. <laughs> like, that was the kind of game that it, it was like, where just nobody plays defense, and everyone scores, and nobody's doing a good job goaltending. I mean, we had kind of a rough night from Sparks, and then the, the Hawks were playing Cam Ward, who is, like, the greatest mystery in human existence how he keeps getting contracts it, he has a no movement clause he has a no movement clause and it's like who were you bidding against the, like when you were the blackhawks um so yeah let me make sure i have his age right yeah he's 34 and cam ward has not been even like a league average goalie in like seven years like i don't understand at all how he just kind of keeps coming back and everyone's like, well, he adds that veteran president. And it's like, no, he's bad. He can't play well anymore. Um, 
anyway, so he was not very good last night, which was to our mercy, and it made the game more fun. But it's like that was a that was a weird one. That was a really weird one. <laughs> yeah, it's just absolutely mind-boggling. So the Leafs' upcoming schedule—they're actually on a road trip right now. So they face Dallas on Tuesday, which will be interesting. Uh, they've had a good start, kind of powered by Ben Bishop, from what I've seen. He's led in like one goal or something ridiculous like that. He's like a 980 save percentage. Yeah, he was the third star of the week behind uh, Taze and Matthews, both of whom have bonkers counting stats because they participated in the game where every team scored like 85 times. Yeah. But yeah, so, so, you know, Bishop has historically been a pretty good goalie when he's been healthy, which is not always. And the stars have at least a few really, really good offensive players. Last year, they kind of were a one-line team, it seemed like, where they had, you know, Sagan and Radulov and Ben. Yeah. And uh, then the drop-off was pretty stark. But, you know, they're a, they're a capable team. Uh, we're playing against the team that now employs both Connor Carrick and Roman Polak. And so I assume each of them is going to get a hat-trick. <laughs> that's just how the universe works. But... Um, yeah, it should be interesting uh, to, to see how that one pans out. You'd really like to see the Leafs get their feet under them a little bit. Just, I'm not even asking for good defense, because I know that that's too much. I'm just asking for, like, a little bit less panic. Just, <laughs> just asking for, like, below average defense. Yeah. Like, can we aspire to mediocrity on the defensive end? Because in all honesty... If this team ever becomes, like, the 15th best defensive team in the NHL, they're going to finish with, like, 120 points because they will outscore everybody on that metric. But it's like, right now, it's like, we're just going to allow 35 shots a night, and we'll try and take 35 shots a night, and our guys are good shooters, and it'll probably work out. But they are who we thought they were. That's the bottom line on this podcast. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I think that's just about it on our end. Do you have anything you want to plug this week, Bulliman? Uh No, I should write something at some point, but as always, I'll have to do it on the fly to justify my existence on the website. Uh, this week, I actually do have something to plug. I, I, I wrote that article about whether it's too early for the Leafs to panic. It was written after their, their first game, but mm-hmm. I think pretty much all of it still kind of holds up because what we've seen in the last two games has been kind of the same, just a little more successful. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. You can, you can read that. You can check all of mine and Fuleman's, uh stuff out on pentantanpuppets.com and the rest of our amazing cast of writers. Obviously, the season's underway. We're ramping up coverage. We have previews, game day threads, recaps, links, discussion for every single game. So there's always going to be something new on the site. You should check it out. Uh, and yeah, all of that is on pensionpanpuppets.com. That's it for this episode. You can also find Fuleman and I on Twitter at RV and at ATFuleman. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.